He is so good, isn't he? His goodness is overwhelming in our lives. Absolutely. We love expressing it. Yep. This is a a special Sunday for us. Labor Day weekend is a time when many families gather and spend time together. And today, we have an opportunity to have all of our families in here during the service. Uh, There's no kids programming on this Labor Day weekend, and so everybody gets to be in here. So if you hear a little extra commotion this morning, that would be why. Uh, We just are excited that the kids are with us and in here. Don't worry about me. I can yell over the top of it. It's not an issue. Uh, We're just so thankful that all of our families and all of you are here with us, worshiping Jesus and exalting him. We're going to do things a little bit different today. I'm not going to have any slides up on the screen. And we are going to camp out in Luke chapter 22. So if you have your Bibles or you have your devices, let me encourage you right now to go to Luke chapter 22, and we're going to be focused there this morning as we look at Jesus, have the Passover with his followers, and introduce what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. As you guys are turning to Luke chapter 22, let me ask you a question. Is there anyone else in here who at times gets discouraged or frustrated because of the sin and evil that they see in the world around us? Right? Anyone? Uh, You look around you and you say, how can these ideas be winning the day? How can these people be our leaders? How can people treat each other like that? Anyone? Let me ask you another question. Is there anyone in here who has ever gotten discouraged or frustrated because of the sin and selfishness that they've seen within the body of Christ? How how can so many leaders lack integrity? How can Christians fight about things that aren't biblically central? How is it that people can treat each other like that? Anyone ever been discouraged or dismayed about sin and selfishness in the body of Christ? Let me ask you another question. Anyone ever grow discouraged or frustrated about the sin and brokenness and selfishness that you still see in your own life? I've been walking with you for how long and I'm still giving in to this temptation? This is still a battle in my life? Every time I set out this new path that I'm going to use in order to draw closer to you, Jesus, I can do it for three days and then I fall back into my own patterns? Anyone? Ever experienced discouragement and frustration because of the sin that you see in your life? Sin and and selfishness and evil can be discouraging in our lives as we look around and we see it all over the place out there and we see it all over the place in here. And I can only imagine what Jesus felt like that final week of his life, as the only person who has never experienced any sin or evil within himself, as he looks around and everywhere he looks, sin and evil is taking place around him. And today, as we look at Luke 22 and Jesus participating in this Last Supper with his disciples, what we're going to see is evil is everywhere. Evil and sin are everywhere as he is participating in this Passover meal. It's in those who are outside of Jesus' followers in the world. And it is in those, that particular one, who is within his inner circle and is going to betray him. And it's also within those who are his loyal and faithful followers. And so let's look at Luke chapter 22 today 
and see what that looks like. Jesus is looking to celebrate the Passover with his followers in Luke 22. What is the Passover? The Passover is a Jewish celebration of God releasing his people, redeeming his people from slavery in Egypt. They put the the blood of lambs on their doorposts and it served as a signal. And because of that, they 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 didn't fall prey to death and punishment, but instead were freed and released. And the Jews would gather every year and some God-fearing Gentiles in order to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. And friends, when they celebrated the Passover in Jerusalem, it was packed to the gills, perhaps like nothing we've ever experienced. A few years after the Passover described in Luke 22, the Jewish historian Josephus says there were 256,000 Passover lambs sacrificed. Now, Now the rule was one Passover lamb for every 10 participants. So if 256,000 Passover lambs were sacrificed, how many participants were there? Right, just short of 2.6 million participants all coming to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was not a big city in terms of footprint at that time compared to the kinds of cities that we're used to. People were packed in shoulder to shoulder. And there's some real question about where in the world Jesus and his disciples are going to find a place to even celebrate the Passover together. But Jesus knows. And he sends two of his disciples Peter and John, out on a mission to find the place where they're going to celebrate the Passover. And we read about that mission in Luke chapter 22, verses 10 through 12. Jesus talking to Peter and John says this, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. This is all very cloak and dagger, isn't it? You're going to go into the city and you almost feel like there should be some sort of secret knock or secret password that they're going to say. And there is this signal that they're supposed to look for. You're going to see a man approaching you and he's going to be carrying a water jar. Now what strikes you about that? Which one? We just said there are hundreds of thousands of people packed into this small footprint. Which one? Well, as we study the culture a little more, what we recognize is, in fact, a man carrying a water jar was very unusual. In Jerusalem in this day, in Israel in this day, women carried water jars. If men were going to go and fill up water, they did it in large leather pouches. And so a man carrying a water jar was very unusual. In fact, it did set him apart. And so Peter and John see that and they know, okay, go with him back to his master's house because the master must know Jesus because Jesus says, hey, tell him the teacher needs a place to celebrate the Passover and he'll do it. And so they gather there in that upper room. Now this all has to be cloak and dagger because there are a group of people in Jerusalem at this point who want to kill Jesus. Look back a few verses at chapter 22, verse 2, and we read, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. The chief priests and the scribes wanted Jesus dead. 
Now they were afraid of the people, so they were unwilling to grab him in broad daylight, but they were looking for some way to put him to death. Why did they want Jesus dead so badly? Jesus was popular, and, and they wanted that. Jesus had power in his ministry that they didn't have, and we're told they were jealous of that. And, and they had, had an opportunity to witness Jesus heal people, raise people from the dead. They had heard him answer their questions with wisdom like they'd never heard before. And their response to all of that was not to bow down and worship him, not to follow him. Their response to all of that was, how can we kill him? We want to go back to our old lives with the way things used to be. How do we get rid of this guy who is upsetting our balance? These men were not followers of Jesus, right? They were absolutely not followers of Jesus. And the evil in their hearts and the selfishness in their hearts is a reminder to us of the evil and sin that is in the world all around us. The evil and sin that is out there in those that don't follow after Jesus. You don't have to look very far to see it, do you? We live in a world where lying is perhaps more commonplace than truth at this point where a majority of the society is left God's standards and God's authority behind and has adopted self-rule in their life. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at how self-rule had replaced God's authority in the area of sexuality. But in reality, that is just one of dozens of areas where self-rule is replacing God's authority. People don't know how to have discussion with each other anymore. There, there's no civil disagreement in our society anymore. Just people yelling and screaming and complaining and whining. Right? We live in a society that is filled with sin, filled with evil. It is all around us. And these people who are not followers of Jesus remind us of the brokenness of our world, of the sin and evil in our world. But they had help from the inside, didn't they? As we look at Luke chapter 22, and these people who, who bring this capture of Jesus, it isn't just that there is an opportunity for them. The opportunity is made for them by someone who is on the inside. We read about him in verses 3 through 6. Look at verses 3 through 6. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. You guys, Judas is a part of the, the community of Jesus, isn't he? He's a part of the inner circle. And yet, what do we see in Judas's heart? We see Judas's heart is dark, isn't it? Judas is, Judas is going to betray Jesus. He is going to do things that are anti-Christ. He is against Christ. And against the way that Christ is telling people that they need to live. And so those who are outside, who are filled with sin and evil, get help from someone who is inside and is betraying and wants to hurt Jesus and hurt his followers. And Judas is a reminder to us of all of the New Testament warnings there are about wolves that are within the community of Christ that want to damage Jesus' name and Jesus' reputation. 
Judas is a reminder to us that sin and evil, it's not just out there somewhere. Sin and evil makes its way into the church in those who in their selfishness and pride and sin want to damage Jesus' reputation and damage Jesus' people. We see this far too often in church leaders these days. There was just a couple of months ago on all of the news stations, this news story about this Hillsong guy, Lentz or something in New York, who had been leading people and had grown this enormous ministry and all the time was having an affair. And Jesus' name is damaged and people's faith is hurt. I, I grew up, I uh, didn't grow up, a few years ago I used to watch this pastor all the time. Really appreciated his ministry, and apparently others did too, because his church grew and it spawned other campuses and more campuses, and it just kept growing and growing. And then they wound up firing this guy because he was abusive to staff and there was financial mismanagement. And it was no more than a couple of years later when he's traveling around speaking to conferences of thousands after that. And now he has another church of thousands, and apparently many of the same kinds of practices are going on from what people say. Because people love his speaking style and don't care about the integrity piece in all of this. I am reminded of a guy named uh, Greg Locke, who is a pastor, I guess, somewhere in Tennessee or Kentucky, somewhere in snake handling country down there. And... Uh, Greg Locke is a guy who at, at one point got tired of his wife and started to have an affair with the secretary of the church, with his administrator, because she was younger and, and she was best friends with his wife. And after a while, he's like, all right, enough of this charade. He divorced his wife, went and married the church administrator. Over the course of the last three years, he's made numerous false prophecies. And what has he seen in the numbers of social media followers? He's up over a million social media followers at this point. Right? He, he has hundreds and hundreds of thousands of social media followers. His church has grown and grown and grown. This adulterer and false prophet continues to draw people because he is a very good at complaining and grumbling about the kinds of things that Christians like to complain and grumble about. And Christians will literally follow the devil if, they, if he will complain and grumble about the kinds of things they like to complain and grumble about. And his ministry continues to grow and grow because wolves exist within the body of Christ. And Judas is a reminder to us of that. Sin and evil, it's out there. It's within the body and the wolves. And I wish I could stop there. I wish I could stop with the sin and evil that's in the world and the sin and evil that's in the wolves within the church. But we actually see sin and selfishness practiced among those who are Jesus' genuine followers as well in this passage. When we look at what is going on in this passage, Jesus is establishing his kingdom's priorities of service and sacrifice in that upper room. He starts the upper room by, uh, he starts this upper room time by washing his disciples' feet. And after he washes his disciples' feet and serves them, he says, hey, you guys, this life of service, this is what it's all about. In the kingdom, we're servants. 
A little later on, they're going to participate in the Lord's Supper together, which we're going to look at in just a minute. And as they take the Passover together, he lays out his own sacrifice for them. And he says, this is what the kingdom's all about. Service, sacrifice, service, sacrifice. And what is the disciples' response after Jesus has lived these things out and called his disciples to it? We see their response in verse 24 of chapter 20, of 22. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. What is their response to Jesus' active teaching of service, sacrifice, service, sacrifice? They look around at each other and say, who belongs on top of the ladder, you guys? Is it you? Is it me? What could have brought this conversation about at this point? My guess is it might have been brought about by the seating chart that day in the upper room, that night in the upper room. It was traditional for rabbis to sit with those that studied under them, and there were places of honor at the table. Everybody knew where these places of honor were. If you sat to the right of the rabbi, that was the seat of greatest honor. If you sat to the left of the rabbi, that was the seat of second greatest honor. If you sat two to the right, seat of third greatest honor. I don't need to go the whole way around the table, right? You, you get the idea. And as the disciples are looking at the table that they are reclining at, and they are looking at the different places of honor, a conversation starts about who should really be in what seats. They look across the table and they say, are you kidding me? That person is ahead of me at the table today? That can't be right. Who was in the place of greatest honor at the Last Supper? John was. Who was in the seat of second greatest honor at the Last Supper? Judas was. Do you notice whose name is not in either of those two seats? Peter's name, right? Now, this is pure speculation, but I got to believe Peter started this conversation because he's like, come on, Jesus. Really? I'm not even top two? You've got to be kidding me here, right? Upon this rock, you, wait, what? How am I not even in the top two? But his disciples, that's speculation, his disciples are all arguing and fighting about who goes on the top after Jesus gives them this lecture about service and sacrifice. And Jesus says, are you guys kidding me? The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. Jesus says, you guys know how the world views these things. There are people who get served at the table and people who do the serving. Who's greater? He says, in the world's eyes, it's always the person who's getting served who is the greater. And Jesus says, but I'm here as the ultimate servant. And I am flipping this entire system upside down so that the person who is the greatest is the person who serves, the person who sacrifices Come on, guys. I read this account and I'm baffled because if you've read through the Gospels, you know this isn't the first time that the disciples have had to have this lecture. It's not the first time they've argued about which one of them is the greatest. And I watch these men, these men who will become the core of spreading the message around the world, spend three years with Jesus and reach a place where when he is giving them the ultimate sermon about sacrifice and serving, they go, Which one of us is the greatest? And pride and selfishness dominate the day. 
This is where this gets very personal for me. I, I can kind of write off all of the sin and evil out there in the world. And I don't think of myself as a wolf. None of us think of ourselves as wolves, right? I'm a follower of Jesus. And I look at these followers of Jesus stumble around in sin and selfishness. And I go, what, what hope is there? What hope is there? If, this, if these are the actions of Peter, James, and John, what hope is there for somebody like me? And the answer is, there's no hope in me. There's no hope in Peter, James, and John. The only hope is the hope found in the work of Jesus that is modeled in verses 14 through 20 of this passage. And so Jesus in verse 14 says, When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. Perhaps you notice there is a cup in verse 17 and a cup in verse 20. And if you know anything about the Passover, you know there were four cups that were taken during the Passover meal. The third cup is the one he references in verse 20. The third cup is the one that is a part of the Lord's Supper celebration that we participate in. It was the cup of redemption within the Passover. The cup that recognized the shedding of blood of those lambs that set them free so that death and punishment would pass over them and they would be freed. Jesus says, this is now a new covenant. It's no longer about lambs, it's about the lamb. This is a new covenant. It's no longer about punishment and death passing over in an angel. This is about punishment and death passing over your life entirely so that you might have new life in the family of God. This is a, a new covenant of your salvation, of forgiveness of sins, of freedom from sin. Jesus says because this new covenant that we can enter into, our sins are forgiven, that we get to dwell with him forever. You notice in verse 18, he says, I'm not going to drink of the cup, of the fruit of the vine. I'm not going to be drinking wine with you guys again until I do so in the new fulfilled kingdom. And so he looks not only backward when he participates in the Passover, but he looks forward and says there's going to come a day when we celebrate together. There's going to come a day at the wedding supper of the Lamb when we enjoy forever life together. Revelation chapter 19 describes that joy. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. I want you to just take a moment and imagine that. Right? A voice of a great multitude. Perhaps it starts as if in a distance and begins to roll in towards us. 
to a point where it becomes deafening to us. Or it is all we can focus on and hear crying out what? Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Jesus points forward to this new covenant reality that allows us to no longer fear death because Jesus got up out of the grave, that allows us to no longer fear punishment and penalty because Jesus paid that punishment and penalty on our behalf. And we look forward to an eternity celebrating with him. Every time we take the Lord's Supper together, we look back to what Jesus has done. We remember our sins and we remember the grace that Jesus has shown us that has forgiven our sins. But we also look forward, look forward to our reality because of what Jesus has done and that we will celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb with him. We're going to take these elements this morning. I invite the worship team to come back at this time. And if you're a follower of Jesus, we want you to participate in these elements with us. We want you to participate in the bread that represents Jesus' body that has been given for you. We want you to participate in the cup that represents the shed blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And if you're a follower of Jesus, please participate in this with us. We're going to give you a moment here where you can bow your heads and write your heart before the Lord, making sure your focus is on Him on what he has done for you and on the future realities that exist in your life because of what he has done for you. Focusing on your sin and your mess and his grace that is greater than all of that sin and has overcome that sin in our lives. And then when you're ready, you can get up and make your way to the tables that are in each corner of the worship center. Make your way to those tables and take those elements And then you can bring those elements back to your seat with you and we'll participate in those elements together when I come back up. And so when you're ready, go ahead and go to those tables to get the elements, return to your seats, and we'll take those elements together. Let's continue to worship God quietly and contemplate in our hearts. If you would stand with me and take the bread. Jesus says, this is my body given for you. As you take this, I would encourage you to be be mindful of Jesus' sacrifice for you and what he has done on your behalf. Eat this all in remembrance of him. As you take the cup that represents Jesus' shed blood for the forgiveness of sins, I again would ask you to be mindful of your own sinfulness, your own brokenness, and then Jesus' amazing grace and mercy that have overwhelmed our sin so that we might be declared righteous before the living God. Would you drink this all in remembrance of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? In a moment, we're going to continue to worship and exalt the name of Jesus in song. The ushers are going to come so we can express our love for God and faith in him by the giving of our offerings together. As we do, I want to
continue this spirit of worship and prayer. Father, we continue to stand in your very presence, recognizing your goodness in our lives. We exalt you, we lift you up, and we are so thankful for the sacrifice that you have made as you have served your creation by becoming a curse for us so that we might live forever. In Jesus' name, amen.